Acts chapter 11. You can look at the outline of this chapter very quickly, very simply by stating that the first 18 verses are really a repetition of chapter 10. What happens is that Peter travels down to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, they're saying, hey, what was going on over there with Cornelius, those Gentiles? You were staying in a tanner's house, which is against the law, the Jewish law and tradition. And so what were you doing over there? And then Peter goes on to explain word for word exactly what Luke had told us in chapter 10 had happened about how he had a vision, how Cornelius had a vision, how they put those visions together and he went up to Caesarea, saw them, the whole family listens to the message, gets saved and comes to trust Christ and the door to the Gentiles is open. And so when he comes back, instead of everybody going, yay, yay, this is great, that's not what happened. And so Peter has to defend this remarkable miracle that opened the gospel to the Gentiles. So then you go down to verse 19 through 30, and that's very straightforward. That introduces us to the church at Antioch. And this is the first time we see the church at Antioch. Great uh, story behind that, and we'll talk a little bit about that today. So as we get started, Peter had been convinced that it was time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. At the same time, he had, he had some other convincing to do, some more convincing to do of his fellow Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. And before I go any further, I want to just stop and I, I don't, I'm remiss this morning and not uh, pausing for a moment and ask God to speak to our hearts. So let's just stop and pray for a moment. Father, we... Um, Sometimes we rush ahead into things when we should be slowing down and making sure that we speak and say exactly what you would have us to say. Although we, we know we can't do that justice, but we pray that the word of God would be powerful in our hearts and lives today, that we'd be understanding what the will of God is for us. And that this, there's so many uh, great life lessons in this text that I pray we just get a few that would help us even this week in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the strongest reservations seem to be by this conservative Jewish group that he called uh, people of circumcision. I'm not sure I'd want to be known by that, but those are the circumcision. These were were Jews in the church at Jerusalem, Christian Jews have been converted, but they believed that, and we said this last week in, in greater detail, but they believed that the new Gentile Christians had to go through the proselyte process that the Jews went, that the Gentiles went through to become Jews, which primarily and most importantly for the men, that meant circumcision. So they got they became known as the those of the circumcision or the circumcision group. So then we have an almost word-for-word presentation of what took place by Peter in order to defend what had happened. And this, this important event, one of the most important events in the New Testament, 
was really all about the Gentiles' inclusion in the church without the legalism of Judaism. So this is a big deal. And since we studied this last week, I'm just going to point out a few things from the first 18 verses because, again, it's word for word what you read in chapter 10. And usually when that's done, it's for emphasis and it's important for us to know. So I'm going to just get a couple of points that I wasn't able to address last week and then we'll move on to the last part of the chapter. First of all, the Jewish Christians' state of mind showed that there was still much prejudice. Much prejudice. If you read verse 3, they said to Peter, and it goes, and, and they said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? This was a type of fellowship that they referred to back then. Anybody remember what that type of fellowship was? Anybody? Anyone? I barely remembered it myself, so I don't expect you to remember. It's called table fellowship. They said, you're having fellowship with them? The, really, the, literally the way you could read this is, how could you, Peter? You went into the house, you're staying in the house of Simon the Tanner, and you went into a Gentile's house? and had dinner with them, you ate with them, you had fellowship with them. So there's still a lot of prejudice. Number two, notice how calmly Peter responds to them, though. Look what he does. Verse 4, he doesn't jump up and say, you bunch of legalized blankety-blank-blanks. He says... Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it happened. Who is this and where is Peter of the pre-crucifixion days? Where is the man that took the sword out and whacked off the guy's ear? Where is the guy that uh, stood up and said, let's, let's do this and let's do that and let's do this? Where, where is that guy? Well, that guy's been transformed. And now he responds, he says, okay. Let me just explain what happened. He simply states the facts. He said, I had a vision from God. Cornelius had a vision from God. There, uh, the witness of the Spirit's filling, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit took, you know, took over the service and filled them with the, uh, they were filled with the Spirit. And then the, there was the witness of the Word of God. John said about Jesus, we were baptized with water, and then Jesus went on, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Joel had prophesied this. He said that's what took place. So all of these things took place. Peter explained it. Now, another thing that I want us to look at, verse 15. Let's read just verse 15 through 17. Peter said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gifts he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? So, three times now we see this gift of the Spirit being given. The filling of the Spirit coming upon people. What were they? When was the gift? Right here, obviously, that's one. Three times. Happens three times. Happened right here where Cornelius, his whole household were saved. They were filled with the Spirit, it says. Where else did it happen? Where? Pentecost. Pentecost. Happened Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Happened one other time. What other time did it happen in Acts? After chapter 2, before chapter 10, 
That gives you five or six to choose from. Anybody remember? Dennis, you remember. <laughs> Dennis taught on it. In, in chapter 8, the Spirit of God fell on the Samaritans, right? Peter is basically saying this was the Gentile Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon this group of people and it happened to the Gentiles just like it did to us and then it happened to the Samaritans. Isn't that interesting how this pattern took place just like Jesus said it would in chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, I've chosen you to be my witnesses. Go and preach the gospel, get people saved, go to where? Go to Jerusalem, Pentecost, and Judea, and Samaria, Samaria, obviously, and the uttermost part of the earth, and it happened to the Gentiles. So, just like, just like Jesus said. Then uh, verse 18, it's interesting verse 18. When they heard this, remember who these guys are. They're very opposed to all of this. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And praise God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. They stopped contending and criticizing and began praising. Did you know, if you've been in church very long, you know that at church, in good gospel preaching, Bible believing churches, you can have both. But you can't have people doing the same thing, doing both of these at the same time. If they're criticizing, it's, I'll guarantee you they're not praising. And if they're praising, they're not criticizing. So the next time you jump in and start to criticize someone or something that's happening in the assembly of believers that you're in, stop and say, am I criticizing or am I spending time praising God? I found that it's probably more profitable if you spend time praising rather than criticizing. And I think that's what these guys figured out as well. Anyway, that was, that, I just threw that in. This didn't settle this completely. In chapter 14, 15, you see they bring it up again, this time with Paul. And they're fighting about it again. So, prejudice is a hard issue. I, I read something that Swindoll said this week. I thought it was good in his book on Acts. He said, what did they learn through this process? One, some changes are inevitable. And there was a huge cultural change that was taking place already, the only church, only five or six years old, in the church in Jerusalem. And the methods and the me everything was changing the way they were spreading the gospel. They're going to the Gentiles. They're sending people out. All of this is changing. The methods change, but the message doesn't change. All right? So change, some changes are inevitable. In our culture, as, we, as our cultures change, as we go into different cultures, our methods are going to change in the way we try to reach people for Christ. We didn't reach many people with Internet Church 25 years ago. There was no such animal. And that method has changed. Man, we didn't have church. Now, I know this is big for some of you. We didn't have church on Saturday night either. 
And some people have gone, oh, church on Saturday night, well, that's not the Lord's day. I don't think you should go on Saturday night because you should come to life group here on Sunday. But that makes no, that has nothing to do with the method of trying to reach people for Christ. Thousands of people come here on Saturday night, reach for Christ. That method, 25 years ago, people would have said, boy, we shouldn't do that. We should all meet on Sunday. So changes are inevitable. But you notice something hasn't changed. That message hasn't changed in 25 years or 250 years or 2,000 years. Number two, any change requires adjustment. That's what we don't like. We don't like the adjustment part. So I like the status quo. Be careful, Christian. I like the way it is. I don't want to see any change. I don't want them to change the way. I don't want them to change. They used to have Danny sing every Sunday. Now they have Fred Novotny sing, and I don't like that. I want Danny to sing every Sunday. I'm sorry, folks, but the change is inevitable, and it takes our adaption on our part. I don't know anything about Danny singing, so I just made that up as one of the issues. So don't go out and say, he said that Danny's not singing anymore. That's not what I said, all right? Every change must be examined in the light of Scripture. Every change. Some things are absolute. Some things are flexible. All right. Now let's go to, let's finish the, let's finish the chapter. Verse 19. Notice now we're going to come into, we've got two churches, two major churches. Up until this point, we only know about one. That's the uh, you know, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And so uh, First Baptist at Jerusalem, y'all know I'm kidding. That wasn't a Baptist church then. Sorry. It's a non-denominational church. So at, in, at First Baptist at Jerusalem, they were primarily made up of Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking Jews. And they were now responsible and they grew into a place of where they were sending people out to reach others. Then you had this new church that we've just, where we just read about, Eddie just read a moment ago, and that's the church at Antioch. We'll talk about Antioch in just a moment. It's primarily filled with the Hellenist, that's Greek-speaking Jews, and then Gentiles, primarily Gentiles in that area. Hundreds and hundreds and literally thousands of people attending the church. They said, well, what the church look? It must have been a pretty big building. Uh, no, the church didn't look quite like it does today. Where did they meet then? The home. They met in homes. Bunches and bunches and bunches of homes all during the week, all the time. And the People who were attending the church were taught by those who were going, they were itinerants. They were going from church, I mean, house to house to house to house to house. Because they, or they would meet out in fields. They could meet out in fields. It started out, they were meeting in the synagogues. They were meeting at the temple in Jerusalem. And later that got pushed out, of course. So they were meeting in homes. Now, let's look and see where all these guys were coming from. Verse 19. Those have been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. Remember, after Stephen was persecuted and stoned to death, they fled there and started going different places. They, they scattered there. The Jewish Christians were, were afraid they were going to lose their life, so they, they took off. And it said that they went to 
traveled as far north, north as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. That's interesting. Verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So, you got a map? Oh, the exploding map. John's just getting fancier and fancier with this. It's a little small, but let's look at it this way. You have, can you see Jerusalem over here? So we can see Phoenicia is up and down the coast, Syrian Phoenicia. It's the area, it's Lebanon now, all right? And then it goes up and they'll talk about Antioch, Syrian Antioch, I'll mention that in a second. Tarsus is just, just west of there, northwest of there. That's where Paul is from and where he is when we read this chapter. But it talks about people from Cyprus, that's the very big island there who went over, to, and, then, and they come over to Antioch, but there are some people there that come. And then there's, there's Christians over in Cyrene, which is northern Africa, and they're going to come all the way over as well and witness and help start this church at Antioch. So they're everywhere. All kinds of folks as the gospel starts to spread. But let's talk about Antioch. Now Antioch, this is Antioch of Syria. There's at least 16 Antiochs. In, in ancient times, during this time. This is the biggest, the best. This is the Antioch that the Bible is talking about for the most part. It's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's the Roman capital of Syria. It has anywhere from 500,000 to 800,000 people. So it makes it the third largest city in the Roman Empire, the known world at that time. What are, the two, what are the two other cities? Do you know? Rome is number one. What's number two? Anybody have any idea? It's not Plano. Not Frisco. Alexandria. All right. Alexandria. And Alexandria, of course, Egypt. This was some kind of city, though. Antioch was an amazing city. It had a main street through Antioch that was four miles long. It had marble colonnade. It was colonnaded with marble columns all the way down the, the, the uh, street. And it was the only street in the known world at that time, including Rome, that had lighted streets at night. Now, it didn't have, you know, fluorescence. It, you know, it was lighted, though, with torches, all the way up and down Main Street. This was a big cosmopolitan city. It was also known as a, a, a pleasure-seeking paradise. Ah, we have it. All right, we're up in the right-hand corner. Remember where Jerusalem is. So that's about 300 miles away. They had, uh, they had it was known as the paradise of Daphne, one of the goddesses. Five miles away, there was a place known as the Paradise of Daphne, which was just dedicated as a pleasure resort. And I'm not talking about Six Flags. <laughs> so this was, this paralleled Corinth in debauchery and sexual immorality and just, 
everything imaginable. So some of those that were scattered by the persecution began preaching to the Jews, and then those from, Cyre, uh, from Cyprus and from Cyrene, they began as missionaries preaching to the Gentiles, okay, and built this church. They had built this Gentile church, and so now the history of the church, you've gone from a Jewish fellowship in Jerusalem to a universal church, all right, where thousands and thousands are attending. Now, it says in verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus went to Antioch and began to speak to Greek also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. That's a little different than when we've heard him preached before. It would say, the Lord Jesus, who? What's the name? The Lord Jesus Christ. All right, there you go, Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't they say the Lord Jesus Christ here? You got an idea? Why weren't they preaching to the Gentiles about the Messiah? Did you ever think about that? Any ideas? Christ was a, was a Jewish thing. That's right. And that's the best way to say it. It was a Jewish thing. That's right. They weren't looking for the Messiah. They didn't know what the Messiah was all about. They would learn that after they became, then they would be enriched by the Old Testament Scripture promising the Messiah, but that was for the Jews. And so they, they, you know, they preached the Lord Jesus. They were preaching the Lordship of Christ. All right? Now, just a little thing, but I think an important thing. And so they sent, verse 22, it says, The news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. There's our old buddy Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, Barnabas already been mentioned a couple of times before this. We'll come back to that in a second. But they mention, so they send Barnabas. That's not his real name. What does Barnabas mean? Does anybody remember? The son of what? Encouragement, consolation, comfort. That was his nickname. You know, somebody, how many of you have a nickname? Raise your hand. You've ever been known by a nickname? All right? You don't have to tell me what it was. Um, and some of you are known by that nickname by something you've done, right? Or the, maybe a physical appearance. Some of you are called shorty. Some of you are called big guy. Some of you are called something else that I don't know. I'm not going to say anything about. Um, <laughs> And, and some of you, you know, you're called, I, I had, I had an uh, uncle. My uncle was, uh, he'd been with Jesus for a long time. His name was Uncle Elbert. I never knew that until, I think, till he died. Because we always called him Black, Uncle Black, because he had white hair. You remember Uncle Black? You knew it. Uncle Black. Did you know his name was Elbert? Yes, oh, I Oh, well. <laughs> she knows more of my family than I do, probably. Rachel and Black. Rachel and Black. And I always thought Uncle Black. Why? Because he had white hair. I know it's East Texas, right? You know, what do we know? East Texas, he's named Uncle Black. Well, this was Barnabas. We'd call him, you know, we'd probably call him Barney. So we'll call him Barney today. Barney, son of consolation. All right, so that was Barney. We're going to come back to Barney in a second. Here's who we had. We had the anonymous 
in verse 19 and 20. We don't we're told anything about them. These are the characters, the anonymous. Then you have the delegate, that's Barney. Then you have the specialist coming in verse 25. Barnabas goes get somebody. Who does he go get? Saul. Saul. He goes to get Saul. Where is Saul? Tarsus. Tarsus. Where is he from originally? Tarsus. Tarsus. So he's back in Tarsus. He's been there for a while. Anybody remember how long he's probably been there? We, we said it last Sunday. So see, you weren't here last Sunday. So you don't have, you know, it's a good guess. Ten years. Probably ten years. He's been there ministering. Barnabas didn't forget him. Goes and gets Saul. All right, so you've got the delegate, specialist. And then you've got the ordinary. In verse 26, it said, uh, uh, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So over a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So it's just a group of people, just the disciples. So that's our characters. We're going to profile Barnabas real quickly. Barnabas. What does it say about Barnabas? Let's read, verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, this is Barnabas, this is, uh, this is the son of consolation, son of comfort, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So there's a lot of things said, and it goes on, and I won't read all of it. He rejoiced at the blessing of God. He encouraged believers. He was a good man. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was strong in faith. He gets help when needed. He went and got, got Saul to come help, which is a great story in itself. But I, he, he, he teaches faithfully. He stays there for over a year teaching these new Christians what, what the faith is all about. And what, he, he, he was trustworthy, the son of encouragement. So, when I read this, two or three things stick out to me. He's a good man. Good reputation. And he's filled with the Spirit. I'd like to have that prayer. Lord, I want to be a good man. And I want to be filled with the Spirit. That'd probably just take care of me. If I got up every morning and say, Lord, I want to be a good man. I know there's none good, no, not one, but I want the reputation to be known as I'm a good man. The lady looked at me yesterday and we were talking about Kevin. She said, you know, he's a good man. He was a good man, and he was. He had, a, he had a good reputation. He's filled with the Spirit. But Barnabas was the son of encouragement. I want you to do an exercise. Now, we, we see Barnabas three times, right? First time we see him in Acts chapter 4. Does anybody at all possibly remember what Barnabas was doing the first time we saw Barnabas in Acts chapter 4? Those of you that are turning furiously trying to find out. Anybody remember? What was Barnabas doing in Acts chapter 4? This is where he was, they were in Jerusalem, but he was vouching for salt. Second one. Acts chapter 4, what was he doing? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're on the right track, just the wrong chapter. The first time we saw him, he, it was right before Ananias and Sapphira. Does that give you a hint? 
He sold some property and he came and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the first way he's encouraging the church is that he's giving. You know how, you, how, how this class, individually in this class, how we encourage the people in Piedras Negras? We don't just call them up and say, hey, we're praying for you. That's encouraging, but that's not the only way you can help people and encourage people. We're going to send them $5,000. That'll encourage them because it'll help them get their building. So that's what Barnabas did. All right? Now, there's two other times. Acts chapter 9, Mike, what does it say in Acts chapter 9? Yeah, they were uh, worried about uh, Paul, uh, right. Paul uh, being there, what he might do, but he didn't trust him. Um, not that, you know, what he was talking about, he didn't know, uh, he really didn't know, and, and singing had heard him teach that the Spirit was such a person of the Spirit that he vouched for Paul right. and those disciples. He stuck up for us. He came in and said, hey, it's a good guy. And he helped and he encouraged Saul, but he encouraged the church to, to hey, welcome this guy in. Take him. He's a, he's, he's, his life has changed. Took a big risk, and yet he encouraged him. And then the last way is here by training and discipling and teaching new Christians. Encouragement. All right, how many of you have a calendar on your phone? How many of you have one? All right, take it out. We're going to do a calendar exercise. All right? Some of you don't have one. That's okay. You can write it down and do it later on whatever calendar you use. Your to-do list or however you do it. You say, well, I don't do it. I just do what comes. Then you're probably going to miss this one. All right? Um, but take your phone out. And I'm going to do it with you. I haven't done it yet. Go to Monday. All right? Now, if you're like me, you got a little plus sign up in the corner that's where you add stuff. And I want you to add the word encouragement on Monday. All right? Just trust me, it'll work. Now, if you're going to do like I am, I'm going to click my little button that says all day. And then I'm going to have it starts Monday. And I'm going to have it to end on Saturday, April 13th. All right? So that means I have got a reminder every day this week, as you will, to find a way to be Barney. And I'm not talking about the big purple dinosaur. How can I find a way to encourage somebody or many somebodies every day this week. Listen, folks, it's not hard. <laughs> it's one of the easiest things you can do is to encourage someone every day. I'm just saying let's do it for six days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm going to find someone or many someones and I'm going to find a way to encourage them. Monday, I may write a note and say, I love you, I'm praying for you. Tuesday, I may pick up the phone and say, Arthur, I'm praying for you today. I think you're a good guy, and I, I, I don't understand why Mariola married you, but I think you're a good guy, and, I'm, and God bless you. And just encouragement. That wasn't probably the way to encourage him, but... Uh, no, I don't understand either. <laughs> there you go. Good answer. Very good answer. 
Good answer. You can tell they've been married for a while. He's, he's got this down. Uh, and Wednesday, I'm going to send a note. And Thursday, I'm going to do X. And Friday, I'm going to do X. So I've got my encouragement note every day. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that. How do I do that? Give me a call. I'll give you some ideas. All right? So we're going to be Barnabas this week. Look at your calendar every day and find a way to do it. Listen, it'll change your attitude in one week if you're having attitude problems. <laughs> it'll change it. I promise you. Try it. Last thing, and then we'll close. In verse 27 through 30, it's interesting. I, I, I don't know all of the ramifications of this event, but you've got these guys. This guy is a prophet named Agabus. Great name. Sounds like a prophet, doesn't it? If you saw a guy named Agabus, I bet you'd say, you're a prophet. Just like you see Barnabas, you'd say, you're an encourager. Agabus sounds like a prophet. So Agabus says, he goes and he talks to uh, the folks at Antioch, which he came down from Jerusalem, that means elevation, came down to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted there's going to be a famine. And he says it's going to happen during the reign of Claudius. So in between... Caligula and Nero, there was Claudius for about 14 years. Didn't have a real good time because the, the grain famine was huge. And it hit one year particularly in Judea. And all of a sudden the church became, the people in the church became very poor and were about to starve to death. So Agabus goes up prior to this and says, look, there's, there's a famine coming. So what does the church do? This new church at Antioch, now they're giving to the old church at Jerusalem. And they send a gift down by trustworthy Barnabas and Saul. They take the, the gift down and give it to the, the church in Jerusalem to help them through the famine. It's sort of like we take a big offer. I just saw Tracy sort of like we take a big offering and send it down to a church that's been established a lot longer than our life group has been established and say we're going to help you not through a famine but to build a building or to put up a water tower. And it's always being on the lookout for how we can give, being so blessed, how we can give to help get the gospel out. Uh, one of my favorite characters in history is Winston Churchill. I think he made a great statement when he said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. And it's sort of the definition of a life group, by what we give. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this good day that you've blessed us with. What a great message we heard today. Uh, from our pastor and how it stirs our heart to reach others. We thank you for the reminder this morning of what our purpose is. We thank you for this class and the, the giving spirit that they have, the spirit of encouragement. I pray you'd show us this week how we can encourage others. So we won't be so focused on our own needs, but we'll be focused on the needs of others as we're called to serve. In Christ's name, amen.